And I invite you to turn once again to 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11. We'll read verses 1 through 15. And this morning as we turn there, I want you to imagine a church fight. Uh, I want you to imagine that there are two groups of people, one larger than the other, both claiming to represent Jesus. And in the middle is the larger part of the congregation trying to figure out whose side Jesus is actually on. And then I want you to add one more group. It's a smaller group, but it's the group that the two sides are fighting about what to do with. And in this group, there's a man who's deeply hurt a number of people in the church. There's a wife and children who've been betrayed by their husband and father so that he could go and be with a different female family member. If you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, you'll know what I'm talking about. There's also a few poor people who still need help from the church. They just have not been able to get their act together. So you have two groups fighting with one in the middle with what to do with this third group of people. And every Sunday, every Sunday, they're all together. The man who hurt the church, the family who've been betrayed, the dad and this woman who betrayed them, and the poor people who just seem stuck, and the left side and the right side and those in the middle. If you're in the middle group, how do you know what to believe? How do you know which side is actually ministering Christ to you into this hurting group faithfully? Because that's going to change how you treat them and how you move forward together as a body. Being able to discern who's faithfully proclaiming God's word and modeling the Christian life. Being able to tell who will help make you a more faithful disciple of Jesus and who will hurt your discipleship with Jesus is a really important question that I think all Christians have. And it's, a, it's an important question in the Bible. I know we took a break from our Jeremiah series, but if we had gone on, we would have seen God address the exact same issue in the book of Jeremiah. You can see it throughout all the Old Testament, really. How do you tell false prophets from real prophets? How can you tell which side brings you and those around you closer to Jesus and which side is actually pushing everyone further away from him? That's a really important question, especially when being close to Jesus is what is required if sinners are going to repent and broken hearts are going to be healed and sinners are going to be restored and persistent love is going to be shown. My friends, this is one of the issues Paul is addressing in chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13. Paul wants the church to know, and like we talked about last time, to feel the difference between real Christian ministry and false Christian ministry. Or as Paul will say, uh, he wants them to be able to tell the difference between those who are serving Jesus and those who are serving Satan. And in this extremely emotional section of the letter, Paul was going to start doing that by exposing two things. He's going to expose to the church how they can know that this other group, the super apostles, are proclaiming a different Jesus and serving Satan and just making everything worse. And he's also going to start exposing 
how the body can tell that he and Timothy and Titus and the local elders, that they represent the real Jesus and that by following their leadership, like we talked about last week, they will feel and experience the presence of Christ and they will meet Jesus in the power of his gospel. It is proclaimed and lived out and grow as his disciples. So let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 through 15, pray, and then we'll just talk about it under our two themes, which is what false Christian ministry does and then what true Christian ministry does. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm going to try and read this as emotively as it reads in the original. So I'm going to do my best here. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 1, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceive Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, You put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by supporting, accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in this way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claims of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Thus far, the reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the passion of Christ, which is revealed in this word. The passion for us to follow you as disciples and to hear the gospel and to grow in love towards you and to one another. Father, we want that same passion to be implanted into our hearts, and so we pray that your spirit now would go out with your word and would give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to believe so that we would love as you love. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher and the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and to receive your word. May it all now be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.
Excuse me. <clears throat> so to start off with, do you hear that Paul is frustrated with the Corinthians, but not angry with them? He doesn't hate them for being confused and torn between himself and those super apostles. He doesn't call them names. Uh, he doesn't excommunicate them, even though he says in verse 4 that some of them have accepted a different gospel. And that as a church, they put up with those who preach a different gospel. Paul doesn't do any of that. He's emotional. He's frustrated. But he doesn't write them off. And he doesn't call their faith into question. See, it seems to me, and I couldn't come up with a single English word, so I'm using this phrase. It seems to me that what you hear and what we hear here is that Paul is lovingly frustrated. And by that I mean Paul's love for the Corinthians causes and shapes and sets limits to his frustration. So throughout the letter, you can tell that Paul and his fellow pastors and elders really love the Corinthians. They really do. They love the people. They love the community. Uh, they clearly were honored at getting to participate in family gatherings and social outings and church events. They genuinely wanted to be there when things were going right and when things were going wrong. They prayed for them, even when they were called names and mistreated by some of them, and they sought reconciliation with them when there was sin. The Bible calls all of that love. But one of the frustrating things about loving people, or I should say one of the contexts in which love will get frustrated, is when people you deeply care about, people that you haven't just invested in, but have given yourself to, when they start suspecting that you did good things for them in order to cover some hidden, harmful intention. And isn't that verses 7 through 10 where Paul talks about how he never asked them to financially support his ministry and instead relied on the giving of the Macedonian Christians? But somehow these super apostles had convinced a large portion of the Corinthian church that his ministering to them for free actually showed that Paul didn't love them and that it was actually a way to manipulate them. If you read between the lines, I think you can hear the super apostle saying in the background, Paul did that so that we would owe him. And now he's trying to make us pay up by forcing us to do things and act certain ways and do, you know, say certain things that we don't want to do say, do say or act. This group of people that Paul loved and poured himself into, gave himself to, started reinterpreting his sacrificial deeds of love and suspecting that there was really a hidden motive behind all of it. Uh, if you've ever been in a conflict, you know the way that suspicion creeps in. You know the way it poisons your ability to give the benefit of the doubt or to read people charitably and to listen and to believe good things about the people that you love. And you know, too, how hurtful and deflating it is when you honestly protest your innocence and then see disbelief in their eyes and feel the rejection of your pledges of love for them. It's so frustrating. It's so frustrating because you love them 
and love wants to be trusted and reciprocated. And you can hear all of this in Paul. You can hear his loving frustration when he says at the end of verse 11, and why did I finance my ministry this way? And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. It's really important that we see the love Paul has for the Corinthians here because this love for the Corinthians is one of the marks of true Christian ministry. The love that seeks unity and reconciliation and repentance and persistent care of those who continue to need help. The love that gets frustrated when holiness and fellowship and forgiveness are denied or rejected, denied to or rejected by anybody in the body of Christ. That love is a sign of true Christian ministry because that love looks like the love of Jesus. And Paul has it very clearly in this section of the letter. And then from this position of love, he points out, and I guess technically this is... Um, this is our first point, uh, technically. Uh, Paul points out that this brokenness is uh, really the effect of the false apostles' ministry. So what false Christian ministry does. Because note-takers, write this down. Kids, memorize this with your amazing sponge-like brains. You ready? False Christian ministry makes us less pure and generous to Jesus. False Christian ministry makes us less pure and generous toward Jesus. Let me unpack that a little bit. First, let's talk about how something can be false Christian ministry. Twice, Paul compares the super apostles to Satan. In verse 3, he compares them to the snake in the Garden of Eden. He says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray. And then in verses 13 to 15, he says very strongly, imagine me standing up in a church and saying this. Um, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an apostle of light, angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. That was quite the Floor speech you made at Presbytery, Matt. It really got people going. Uh, I've never, I, I don't need to do that on the floor of Presbytery. But you can hear, like, this is the context. And here I just want to point out, false Christian ministry can be very hard to see. Like the serpent in the garden, it claims to clarify what God really meant by what he said. Did God really say, could also be interpreted, is that really what God meant exactly? And like when Satan clothes himself in light, false Christian ministry arrives with many of the visible trappings of righteousness. It dresses the right way, eats the right things, says the right words. They're smart people. They're well-spoken. And it's genuinely confusing. Paul understands that. That's the point of these analogies. How do you tell real prophets from false prophets? How do you tell real Christian ministry from fake Christian ministry? It's not easy. Here's the answer Paul gives. It's the answer he's been building up to throughout the whole letter, and that is false Christian ministry makes you less pure and generous 
in your devotion to Christ. That's the end of verse 3. I'll start at the beginning for ease of listening, though. So verse 3 again. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. From a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The word sincere is one of the words Paul used in chapters 1, 8, and 9 to talk about giving generously, open-handedly, liberally, freely, without strings, sincerely. I don't want I'm giving this out of my genuine desire to help you, not to get something in return. To be sincere toward Jesus means to be open-handed and open-hearted towards Jesus. And purity means single-minded, constant, consistent love. So there's a lot of things I want to say, uh, but I came across this quote from Karl Barth that I think Jesus meant for me this week. Uh, so Karl Barth said, the word became flesh, uh, and then through theologians it became words again. I think that's pretty fantastic. Uh, I don't want to do that, so I'm going to keep this as focused as I can. Uh, throughout the letter, Paul has been uh, calling the church to sacrificial generosity, generous forgiveness toward the man who's deeply hurt the congregation, generous support for this family who's been betrayed, generous calls for repentance for the betrayer, which looks like saying, what you're doing is sinful and hurtful, but it doesn't have to be this way. You can turn from this and we'll forgive you. We'll figure out how to walk together in this mess. And we'll prayerfully trust that Jesus will work in all of this for our good and for his glory. You can see that back in 1 Corinthians. He calls them to the generosity of loving frustration, which gets so frustrated that you're not receiving my love. I'm going to draw near and make it even harder to you and not disgusted anger, which goes, ugh, get away from me. I don't want it. That's what Paul does in his letter. That's what he calls them to. And of course, as we've heard, Paul calls them to continual financial generosity toward the poor and needy in the church and towards the larger churches of Jesus. Paul's preaching is about this you could almost say radical opening of ourselves up to Jesus in sharing with each other, in forgiving each other, in loving each other, by calling each other as there's need to the possibility of restoration where we walk with each other in our brokenness in Jesus' name. It's all about mercy and meekness, right? Humble patience and gentleness like we heard last week. And it's about calling us to do this as single-mindedly, and sincerely as we can, and to grow in it every day, if possible. Why? Well, because Christian ministry and Christian preaching and Christian practice is aimed at fulfilling the command that Jesus left us right before he was crucified. Jesus says, a new command I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Not that you love one another the way that you feel like it, but you love one another the way that I have loved you. And this 
radical, open generosity is how Jesus loves us. What do you have that Jesus has not shared with you? What forgiveness has Jesus denied you? What help have you lacked? When you run off into sin, does he throw up his hands? Or does he chase after you into the darkness? Does Jesus' generosity run out after three strikes? Does it ever run into a situation like we read about in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, which is the one I've been alluding to in this family betrayal? Does it ever run into a situation where Jesus goes, look, I came down from heaven to earth, took on true humanity, died on the cross, suffered hell, but like this mess is too much, too crazy, too hard. I just don't want anything to do with it. I have better things to do, too much time and energy involved to help. I'm going to step back from this one. Does Jesus ever do that? No. No, he doesn't. You see, Jesus' generosity is not simply that he gives his forgiveness generously, which he does. But the full, the full reality of gener Jesus' generosity is that he gives himself generously. Jesus is the God who is with us, the Bible says. He's with us in our failures to put the pieces back together because only his presence brings restoration and wholeness. He's with us in our sin to speak words of repentance and forgiveness and restoration. He's with us in our struggles and pains, as Paul says at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, to bring us comfort. Jesus is with us in broken relationships and even in the valley of the shadow of death to give us his resurrection power and to show us that he makes all things new. That's what Emmanuel means, right? It's not just a fun title. Emmanuel means he's God with us. Jesus is generous with himself. And he's pure towards us. He single-mindedly loves us without failure. Now here's a cool addition. Listen to this. Because Jesus is with us in such a radical way, that means that when we are generous with each other, we are also being generous toward Jesus. I don't want to geek out on the grammar too much, but when Paul says a generous and pure devotion to Christ, he's riffing off of Jesus' statement in Matthew 25, which you can't supersede really well in English. You can in the original, and I'm not going to take time to geek out on it. But this is what Jesus says. Jesus says that at the judgment, God will tell his people, as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. True Christian ministry teaches you that to love each other the way that Jesus loves you, you do that because Jesus is with us. And it teaches you to make the same kind of generous, sacrificial, loving actions as Jesus. And true Christian ministry teaches you that as you treat each other the way that Jesus treats you, you are not only doing those loving deeds to that person, but to Jesus who is with that person. 
But false Christian ministry withholds forgiveness. It withholds correction and the possibility for repentance. It withholds help. And most seriously, in my mind, it withholds hope. Because it doesn't trust that Jesus can actually and will actually bring repentance and healing and transformation here into this mess because he is the God who is with us. Last point quickly. What true Christian ministry does. And I suppose I've already answered that in one way. I'm just going to summarize. I think we can see that true Christian ministry experiences loving frustration when sin breaks us apart. But it doesn't throw away the relationship. Instead, it throws itself into seeking repair of those relationships in Jesus' name, if possible. And true Christian ministry does that by calling us to be generously loving and open toward one another in Jesus' name because Jesus is with us and he's with, each, he's with them. And then one final thing I guess I would add, true Christian ministry tells the truth even when it's hard. And I think that this point in many ways holds a lot of these things together. The super apostles were very clearly telling the Corinthians something along the lines of, you don't need to forgive that guy. He's a jerk. You don't need to pour your energy into that broken family because they're not your concern. You're a church. You're not family. You're not blood. It's not your problem. You don't need to worry about helping those poor folk anymore because like, it's hard. And they need to get their act together. Take care of yourselves first. Those are all things that are really nice to hear, not if you're the people they're talking about, but if you're the middle group, because they don't require sacrifice, time, vulnerability, exposure to the need to forgive again, and they especially do not require you to fall on your knees and cry out to God for your help in his presence because you recognize that this is just beyond you. Instead, false Christian ministry frees you from the need to worship and to rely on Jesus by faith. It frees you from experiencing love's frustration that they aren't receiving all the blessings that Jesus wants to give them through his spirit and through you and through the church. I think this is actually the kind of thing that Paul has in mind when he warns Timothy. Uh, this is 2 Timothy chapter 4. He tells Timothy, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, that is, who will let them do what they want to do, which I don't know any of us that wake up in the morning and go, you know what I want to do today? I want to die for Jesus. I want to sacrifice and cry with the man of sorrows. That sounds so good. No, I think we wake up and we're like, man, I really hope nothing bad happens. I'm not put out today and like I can go home and binge watch Netflix. That just sounds like the perfect day to me. Uh, that would be our own passions. True Christian ministry says like, yeah, if God gives you that day, praise him. That's a great gift. But if he's called you, 
to the sacrifice of forgiveness, confession, repentance, time, restoration. That's what you need to devote yourself to this morning and this afternoon and this evening in that context. See, Christian ministry tells you the truth, which is we need to submit our passions to Jesus. We need, as Jesus says in our meditation verse, to take up our cross and follow him in his way of love because, yes, it does open us up to frustration. But in following Jesus, it opens us up even more so to hope, to the hope of Christ's gospel, to trusting that as we are generous toward each other, as Jesus is generous towards us, that we are not only giving each other Jesus, but that Jesus will even use us and our sacrifices and done in his name and our suffering done in his name and turn them into the blessings of repentance and faith and reconciliation and care and unity because that is what the love of Jesus and the presence of Jesus does in the lives of his people. And it's what he chooses to do with our love done in his name even when it's frustrated. So I'm going to be honest, like it's super scary to preach sermons where you're like, let me tell you how the Bible says to discern true Christian ministry because like I'm mindful, I may not measure up. But our goal should be to measure up. This is our calling, beloved. To receive, hear, and follow the ministry of Christ that calls us to love each other as Christ loved us, to be generous with each other as Christ is generous with us, knowing that not only are we loving our neighbors, we're also loving Jesus who's with our neighbors. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I want to be a faithful pastor. Uh, Our elders and deacons want to be faithful. And as a body, uh, we all want to be faithful disciples of Christ. So please help us to minister the gospel of your love and mercy with real actions. Please help us to talk about your gospel with faithful, gentle, and true words and with humility. And please bless the presence of Christ in our lives so that we would all bear the fruit of his righteousness as it's poured out of us by the Holy Spirit, whom we know you have poured into us by your grace. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.